Um, so we're back from Disney. Uh, thanks for the prayers. The f- two plane flights were the smoothest I think I've ever been on. But because there are so many new people here from two years ago, I have to tell the story again of two years ago. You remember what Danielle Eikenberry did? It was like the, one of the greatest moments of my life. She's the other chaperone uh, from uh, the school that goes with us. And we're flying in. I bought the cheap flights. I always try to do that. It's always good. The planes that save on maintenance. So we... Um, we're flying into Charlotte, and we're coming down for a landing, and I'm sitting next to Danielle, and the pilot's bringing us in. It's a little windy, and we're kind of moving around a little bit, and right before we touch down, he guns the engines and takes us back up into the air. I'd never had that before, but he aborts the landing. So everybody's kind of like, um, which is always enjoyable, and uh, I was like, all right, kids. Um, so he comes over. The captain comes over and says, sorry about that, folks. It just got a little gusty down there, so we're going to come around and try it again. So when we land, Danielle gets on the phone with Evan, uh, her husband, and I overhear the conversation, and she said, well, he had to abort the landing because he said it was really dusty down there. (laughs) I'm just loving the image of of the captain coming in for a landing and looking at the landing strip and being like, well, I don't know the last time they swept that runway. I just can't do it. (laughs) Well, we're going around. Till they get a broom out here, I'm not, anyway... Really dusty. So anyway, okay, so the trip was great. It was fun. It was, it was enjoyable, and every kid came back, and that's a successful trip. So um, this is where we've been, this whole idea of better, this entire series, and I get excited about it because we're talking about our mission, the Great Commission to go out, and at Jerome, we put it this way, to win people to Jesus, but then build them up in the faith. It's not about just growing wide. It's about deepening people's faith because people who are deep in their faith will then go out and do what? They'll, we send them to go out and make more disciples. That was Jesus' model. And we contrasted that with the model of the world. We said we too often the church uses the worldly keys, and what do we try to do? We try to use political power to force everybody to abide by Christian morality. And all we do is tick people off when we do that. It's surface level. We're not actually making disciples, people who, who love Jesus, and, and that's their first love, and they're fired by that, and they're motivated by that, to go out and make other disciples. Who cares who sits in, in positions of earthly power? That's not where the power is. It's in disciple making. Okay, so we've been talking about that and how we go about doing that and avoiding drift and, and, and all of this. So today's message, God willing, is going to be focused on a couple key points. I've said I want our renewed focus on the mission to be focused on the fact that we have the most exciting life you could ever imagine. And it's completely contrasted with what the world believes. The world believes theirs is the exciting life, and we Christians have to abide by all these rules so that one day we can live in heaven. And man, they got that jacked up, because Jesus says that I've come to bring you life and life more abundantly, and he wants us to have it now, and that's going to be the biggest draw to the world. So, let's start here. We talked about, uh, last time I was here, I don't know what in the world Jason talked about, but last time I was here, I tried to watch it. I was in line for the Navi River journey and I got on my phone to try to watch it and I'm half hearing these weird Navi boat sounds and then I hear Jason. I don't know which one's coming from which. Anyway, so I don't know what he said, but this is what I'm saying. If there is such a thing as truth, if truth really exists, and what I mean by that is a right and a wrong, a good and a bad, a true and a false, a yes and a no for all people in all places at all times. If there is truth, then there also has to be such thing as a lie. 
If there is a truth, then there is a lie. It's necessary for that to be the case. So if we are going about the business, as we talked about last time with me, if we're going about the business of discovering truth, we're not making it up for ourselves, we are discovering truth, and we Christians understand the Bible is the place that we go to to discover that truth, then we're also going to simultaneously discover lies. If we find out what is true, we will necessarily find out what is false. If we find what is good, we will also discover what is bad. If we discover what is right and righteous, we will discover what is wrong and wrongious. Okay? So that's what we do when it's a word. That's what we do as Christians. Now, I want you to understand that's also the lure of believing in my truth. Well, I'm speaking my truth. He's speaking his truth. Why do people buy into that? Well, because if it's my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth, then you get to draw the lines. You get to draw the lines of what is good and bad and true and false. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I believe with all of my heart that the people that live this way notice it. They just don't acknowledge it. But if you pay attention, you will notice that where they draw the lines of right and wrong, it always will coincide with whatever they feel and want to do in that particular moment. Their truth will always apply perfectly to allow them to do whatever it is that they desire that they want. And that's the lure of it. Because if there is the truth that is independent of what you want and what I want, if there is the truth, then you don't set the boundaries. You discover the boundaries. I want to stop for a second. That word right there, boundaries, when we go out and try to evangelize the world, when we try to share our faith and bring other people to know Jesus, that word is really going to turn people off. People don't like boundaries. They don't like to be hemmed in and told what they can and can't do, especially in the United States. Autonomy and independence and freedom and boundaries rubs them the wrong way. But this idea of boundaries, I just saw Danielle back there. I bet you really enjoyed the story, didn't you? All right, okay, good. Anyway, sorry, I totally got distracted. This boundaries idea, it really makes the Great Commission click. It does. The Great Commission that you and I have, remember what we said about this, that this is his truth. We found him... And therefore, we found the truth, and all we're doing is proclaiming the truth. It isn't our truth. It's his. Whose authority are we standing on? Not our own. We're speaking on his authority. Remember, that's what he said on the mountain. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go. I'm transmitting my authority to you to go out and share my truth with the world. In other words, I would say to the world, you can be mad at me, you can be mad at me for how I present the truth because maybe I do it in a tacky way. Maybe I do it in a very ineffective way. Be mad at me for how I present the truth. You can be mad at me for trusting Jesus and his words. You can say, well, I trust this person and this professor or I trust my own mind on this. And you can be mad at me for trusting Jesus because you think you're wiser than him. That's legitimate. But don't be mad at me for what the truth says because it's not my truth. I'm just proclaiming what I have discovered. I want you to know what I have found. That's the message. This goes back to something that I said before. I think too often, we as believers in our evangelism, we take this role of we have to go out and conquer all the forces of evil so that Jesus can reign and he can have his rightful place. Stop it. He's already conquered. He's already overcome the world. We know that. We've submitted to it, and we're telling everybody about it. He already rules, and we are the heralds of that truth. Don't misunderstand whose role is which. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This passage, 
Okay, real quickly, flip to the back page of your program if you would. This is totally on me. I had a really bad week until these last couple days. And um, because of that, I did not get Debbie the information. So right there where it says sermon, you should put boundaries. Okay, so series is better, sermon is boundaries, and then the scripture is Acts chapter 4. And that's where you need to turn right now. I know I told you that I'd put it in there so you could turn. By the way, the random number one on the back page, that's totally Debbie. That was not me. I have nothing to do with that. So the random number one, that's on her. Okay, so flip to Acts chapter 4. I put the whole chapter. I'm not going to do the whole chapter, but I want to look at this because this right here, this is us. When we go out into the world and we face opposition for proclaiming his truth, remember, Matthew 28, we are his disciples. Can you tell I'm keyed up? I am very keyed up. Matthew 28, we are to go out and spread this truth. We weren't the first disciples sent, though. The first disciples sent were these guys that, that we've read about, the disciples, the 12, and they're to go first to Jerusalem and the Judea and Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth, Jesus said. That was, that's what the book of Acts is. So in Acts chapter 4, you got two of them, Peter and John, and they've been out. They just healed a guy who was a cripple. All right, so pick it up in verse 1. This is how we should be responding when the world criticizes us for our proclamation of the truth. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching, and uh, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So the next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, they meet in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, look at this line, filled with the Holy Spirit, okay, standing on his authority, the Spirit is filling Peter, and he's going to speak this message. The same Spirit that fills us, that when we open ourselves and we speak to the world, that Spirit has filled us. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and look at what he proclaims. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He, Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected. Quoting, quoting scripture, Old Testament scripture. The Pharisees are bristling now. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And then this line, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Oh my gosh, can you imagine the courage, the guts it had to take? It's got to be the Holy Spirit empowering them. They're standing there, can lose their lives for saying this, but Peter throws it out there. Now, why is he willing to do it? Well, keep reading. This is so good. All right, so when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. I mean, this guy was a cripple, and now he's standing there walking around and jogging. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, 
Good luck. To stop this thing from spreading among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I'm stopping right there because that's where we are in this culture. It is no longer acceptable to preach the message of Jesus. And I don't mean you're going to be thrown in jail for it. But culturally, to preach the exclusivity of Jesus, the truth of Scripture that runs afoul of culture, it's no longer socially acceptable to do that. Right? Okay. Look at the response and what Peter says and John says in response to this command. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Verse 20. This is our verse. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. I can't stop. I'm not going to stop. How could I possibly stop? After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And then verse 22 that really sticks in my side. I don't know why it's necessary. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Because apparently that's when it's all over. But okay, so... Oh, he's 40 years old. How is that even, he's even capable of standing. All right, so you see what's going on here. The disciples, Peter and John, clear lines, right and wrong. They have no shame. And why? Because it's not their authority. It's not their opinion. They can speak with boldness because it's his authority. He says, look, we have submitted to Christ. We are totally on board with this, so I have no choice. You can be mad at me if you want, but you're not going to stop me from proclaiming this because it's true today. The worldly Pharisees, the, the, the teachers of the law of our day, who are preaching a different religion, the, the religion of the age, the spirit of the age, they will demand your submission to, and they will demand your fealty to what? To the spirit of the age. And they will criticize you and your faith, and they'll say this, your message is exclusive, it's discriminatory, it outlaws all of these other people, it sets these boundaries that cuts all of these other people off. You cannot say that. That is immoral, that is wrong. We've seen that. We've talked about that. And the danger is that a lot of people in the church are tempted by that. Because here's what we think. We think, well, shouldn't we want to erase lines between us? Shouldn't we want to tear down walls? Isn't that what Jesus came to do, to tear down walls? And we misunderstand this. Listen, if there was a my truth and your truth, then yes, absolutely, we should tear down every wall that exists between us. No matter what it is that people do, whatever it is that they believe, it's their truth. And I've got my truth. So if that is the reality, then of course tear down every wall. Who would any of us be to dismiss someone else's truth? I've got mine, and he's got his. And I think one of the reasons so many churches struggle with this idea is because we have adopted the philosophy of the age, which is everybody has their own truth. That's the reality. Take sexual orientation and the churches that affirm. Well, affirm means to put a stamp of approval on, on whatever gender identity or sexual orientation a person says. That's a very hip thing to do, and a lot of churches think that's how we show love. Why do they do that? Well, this is who they are. This is who they believe they are, and therefore we must affirm that. They have their truth, and that's not necessarily for us, but it is for them, so we will affirm that. That's this philosophy right here. Why does this church not do that? Well, there's a reason this church doesn't do that, and it's pretty simple. The New Testament of Jesus does not reveal a gospel of personal preference. That's not what the New Testament is. So if you are a New Testament Christian, let me give you the words of John and Peter, you have no choice. You don't. You're bound by this. It's a gospel that offers all of us a choice. Choose Jesus or choose yourself. 
And if you choose yourself, then of course, by all means, accept and affirm the choices of whoever for whatever reason, because you have no authority over them. You have authority over your own life, but not theirs. But if you submit to Jesus, he has all authority in heaven and on earth over all men in all places and all things. He is the ultimate authority. And when you submit to that, yes, it will break down some walls, but it will also raise other walls. That's the reality that I see in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter's building a pretty big wall when he says salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That is a big wall that's being raised. When I say that um, uh, certain walls will be torn down, you got to follow this. I'm very proud of this, so I really need your attention, okay? Walls between believers are raised, that's R-A-Z-E-D, which means broken down. This is so good. Walls between believers are raised by Jesus. They're broken down between Christians. Why? That's what Paul says to the Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's why if you leave this church and you go to Africa and you worship with a group of Christians there, they're family. Because ethnic boundaries, racial boundaries, language boundaries, none of it, gender boundaries, none of it matters. We are all family in Christ Jesus. Those walls are broken down. But walls between Christians and the world are raised by Christ. Yeah, that is just quality stuff. If that's not written down on the back of your paper, you got a problem. Because this is what Paul says then to the Corinthian church. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? But so many of our American churches are, are, are just mangling this. We're trying to blend light and darkness together. We're trying to, to blend fellowship between righteousness and wickedness and thinking somehow we're keeping with the gospel of Christ. No, we have to accept certain walls are broken down and other walls are raised up. That's the reality of truth. Many American churches reject this notion right there. You wonder why we're struggling with the Great Commission. This is a big reason why we are. They preach, well, we need to love and embrace the mystery. That's very common these days, the mystery. In other words, we can never really know because we don't have the mind of God. We can't really know what this says. If you hear somebody say, I'm quoting them. If you hear somebody say, the Bible is clear about whatever, what they're really saying is, my interpretation of the Bible is clear about. right? And so what is the end result of that philosophy? There's no point to this because you can just interpret it however you want to. Truth is ultimately not knowable. That's the argument that's here. There was a, a kid that I had my first year teaching. His name was Ben. And Ben introduced me to a guy named Rob Bell. Rob Bell was coming on the scene, was a very popular minister at the time. And Ben loved Rob Bell for this very reason. Ben was turned off by the, um, the doctrinal uh, arrogance that he saw in a lot of churches. We're right, they're wrong, case closed. That's it. He didn't like that. And so to hear a minister acknowledge, man, we don't have all the answers. And we're trying, we're doing our best, that appealed. And in fact, Ben used the words, that's a much more exciting faith to acknowledge you don't have all of the answers. I remembered that when I'm talking about what is the exciting uh, nature of our faith. It seemed exciting to Ben. I am thankful that Ben abandoned Rob Bell before Rob Bell eventually abandoned the truth and walked away from the gospel of Christ. I'm thankful that Ben realized that and jumped ship uh, early enough. Because what was Rob Bell doing? When he said, let's embrace the mystery and we can't know everything, 
You remember we said that life is a river and it's flowing in one direction and we Christians are supposed to be, according to Hebrews, resisting that. We're walking and pushing against that drift. You know what Rob Bell was doing when he says embrace the mystery? He's lifting his feet up. That's what he's doing. And he's carried downstream. Rob Bell's vision and his journey was not exciting. It was conforming. It was conforming to the drift of the world and it's now carried him and who knows how many other people that followed him away. Listen, you want to talk about exciting. Here it is. If God exists, and I don't know where you stand on that issue, I would like to think a pretty high percentage of us here are on board with the existence of God. But if God exists, and I'm talking about this ultimate, this unimaginable, this indescribable being that created everything, everything in the universe, can't even wrap your mind around. If a God like that exists, please tell me that you understand this point. Then he is the most exciting thing that there could possibly be. Nothing could be. Whatever, right now, think in your mind, please don't say it because I'm afraid of some of the answers. The most exciting thing in the world to you, whether it's another person, whether it's a situation, whether it's a place that you would go, whatever it is that's exciting to you, and you can't imagine anything more exciting than that. Okay, God created that. So whatever it is that you, whatever excitement is contained in that thing of yours, whatever created it has to have even more excitement as a part of him that he put into that. That's what I'm saying. If there is this creator, there's nothing. Why is heaven never going to be boring? We're there for eternity. How does that not get boring? Because we can never exhaust the mind of God. It is inexhaustible. It's, it's unimaginable. We can't even begin. Your imagination, even the most clever among you, it doesn't even begin to rival his being. Your imagination is so limited in comparison to who and what he is, and that's why discovering truth, I told you two weeks ago, is so much more exciting than inventing it. If you invent your own truth, your own right and wrong, you know what you're confined by? You talk about boundaries. You're confined by the limits of your own imagination, your little pea brain. I've got one too. But that's the limits of your, uh, of your imagination. But if you discover it, it's inexhaustible. And every piece of truth that we discover about God, it's painting a portrait of him. That's what's happening. Every piece of truth. Why do I love studying the scriptures and why do I want to learn more about scriptures? Because it's revealing to me an image of who this exciting God is that created me and that I worship. That's one of the most fascinating things to me about the book of Job. You remember the book of Job? That's the one that you read if you, you know, want to feel better about yourself. Well, at least I'm not that guy. Um, in the book of Job in the Old Testament, this dude's really wealthy. He has everything. And Satan comes to God and says, look, the only reason Job loves you is because you blessed him immensely. He's like the wealthy guy in the world. And so if you took that away from him, he'd curse you. He's, that's the only reason. And so the whole book of Job, what you see at the beginning of Job, you see God keeping Satan on a leash. It's fascinating. He keeps him on a leash, but allows Satan to bring calamity on Job's life. And, and Job loses his family, and he loses his wealth and his possessions, and he loses part of his health. And all this stuff happens to Job, right? And, and what happens in that book? Flip real quickly, if you would, to the third chapter of Job. I want to show you something in here. This um, is it's great. Okay, uh, I'm saying that because I'm not going through what Job is. But in Job chapter 3, Job, after all of this bad stuff has happened to him, he starts speaking. And he's got a lot to say. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but I want you to look first at verse 11. See if you pick up on what Job keeps asking over and over and over. Why did I not perish at birth? Verse 12. Why were there knees to receive me? Verse 16. Why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child? 
Verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 23, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? What is the question that Job keeps asking? Chapter 3, but then after that as well. The one that he keeps asking a question is, why? Why is all of this happening? Have we ever asked that question? Yeah. Has the world that we're trying to reach for Jesus ever asked that question? Why? Why is all of this taking place? And do you know in that entire book what God never gives Job an answer to? Never gives him an answer to the question, why? Why this had to happen to him? Never gives him an answer to that. I, I would contend Job probably couldn't have grasped the answer anyway. Because the ways of God are beyond the ways of men. What if the reason Job suffered that was so that you and I, in 2023, Jerome Christian Church, could see from that story an account of, uh, of perseverance and suffering? What, what if that's the lesson? God's going to try to explain that to Job? Job can't possibly understand God's intentions and his ways. So what do you see? Instead, God gives Job in this book an answer to a question that he wasn't asking. Do you know the answer that he got? Rather than giving answers to these eternal questions about human suffering, he revealed his greatness to Job. That's what he did. In other words, Job doesn't find the why that he's looking for. Instead, he finds the who that he didn't even realize he should be looking for. That's the power of the book of Job. Christianity is more than just agreeing, and this is where the world is so wrong. It's more than just agreeing with a worldview or a set of ideas or a set of ways. That's more than that. What is Christianity? It's giving yourself to a person. That's what you're doing in Christianity. And that's why what we discover is so exciting because we're finding out more about that person. And it's why it's so freeing. That's what I'm saying. You love freedom, then you should love Christianity. Totally counterintuitive to what the world believes. That's a good word, counterintuitive. Put that in your vocabulary. Brad Clark, you're writing it down. Yes, I've helped your vocabulary so much since I took this job. Before me, he was, the cat ate the dog. Anyway, I guess the dog would eat the, it doesn't matter. All right, this right here, why is it so freeing to the world? Think this through. Boundaries are restricting, and they're not freeing. The world doesn't like boundaries. Don't tell me where I can go and what I can do. I want to be free. That's why a lot of people that you interact with would say they reject Christianity. Making up your own boundaries and your own rules, now that's freedom, right? That's the ultimate freedom. If you watch any sport, you will get annoyed by the rules of that sport at some point in time. If you watch the Super Bowl and you were cheering for the Eagles, at the end of the game, the pass interference call on the Eagles... Right? Which was pass interference by the letter of the law. It was. Stuff it, Eagles fans. It was, okay? But you get annoyed by that because you look at the game and say, okay, that's ticky-tack. That's silly. Why are they calling that? Right. We all get annoyed by the rules of a sport, whether we're playing, whenever they go against us. But have you ever played a game with someone who doesn't play by the rules? How much fun, if you've never done that, let me introduce you to my children, okay? And you can be free to play. Like Grayson in the memory game where you flip over the cards. Dude, when he can't get one or two, he just starts flipping over all the cards. And he's like, Is it Grayson, you can't play that way. It's fine, Daddy, it's fine. It's unbelievable. But anyway, it's, there's no game when you don't abide by the rules. Imagine if everyone didn't abide by the rules. Would you have a game? If every football player on the field just completely ignored the rules, they don't wait for the ball to be snapped, they grab people by the face mask and shove them down, they run with the ball out of bounds, there is no boundary anymore. If nobody played by the rules, is that freedom on the field? Are you extra? No, it's chaos is what it is. And there's no game at all in any of that. And by the way, it's not always a game. Those horrific uh, earthquakes that happened in Turkey 
not, not too long ago. Have you seen any of the aftermath from that? Thousands of people dead. And you know what they're now realizing? I just saw this story this week. Turkey's buildings are now being revealed that a lot of them were put up not according to the building codes that would have made them withstand the earthquakes. How many thousands of people died because the builders of these buildings didn't want to follow the restrictions and the boundaries? Okay, and it's not just, it's not just buildings. It's not a game. Uh, you ever heard of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge that was built out in Washington? This is 1940s, right? And I guess they didn't know much about engineering back then. This always looks like a bridge that Ben Reed would put together. But Tacoma Narrows Bridge, they built this thing, and it lasted about a month. And after they had released it to the public, people noticed as they're driving across it, this thing moves. And I don't think a bridge is supposed to move. And over time, and I'm speaking of a couple weeks, the thing... Um, well, I'm just going to show you the video clip of this. Concrete should not be able to move like this, all right? Can we take a look at what I'm talking about? Yeah, that idiot running across the bridge. Who sees a bridge doing that? It's like, I'm going for it. And takes off. I just, I don't get it. Okay, so what is the point of all of this? The only way to enjoy a game is for all the players to embrace the rules. Yes? Otherwise, there is no game. The only way to feel free to move about or to cross a bridge or to move about in a building is if you abide by the building code that makes it safe. Otherwise, there's disaster that takes place. And yet modern man comes along and believes and says and preaches there is freedom only in doing whatever you want. No rules. Do whatever you want. Why is this going to end any differently than this right here? Where's the logic in that at all? That kind of life that the world is offering people is stunted and narrow and disastrous. Christianity, what we're offering to the world, it isn't about conforming reality to ourselves. What's it about? It's about conforming our souls to reality. That's what we're about, and it's about what we're doing. We are imperfect at that, and this is the other point that I want to make sure I stress in our reaching out to the world. This is point number two of this message. We are imperfect at discovering truth. And I don't want to pretend that I have a complete corner on all of this. And that's why one of our characteristics, and one that I think the church lacks too often, but it must be visible to the world for us to be genuine and effective in our outreach, is humility. We have to be humble in our minds. The world says things like this. Why should I believe in a faith that has a hundred different denominations and a hundred different beliefs? You guys don't even know what you believe. And you got all these disagreements out there. Okay, listen, this is point number one. The fact that we debate over doctrine and what is the truth and what this actually means, that isn't a sign that truth isn't knowable. It's the exact opposite of that. It reveals that there is a truth, a correct answer, and that's what we're arguing over. There's no point to arguing if there is no truth that is knowable, okay? So the fact that you see Christians bicker about certain doctrines, that doesn't mean that nothing is knowable. It means that we're humans and we're doing our best to arrive at an answer of the truth. What we should invite the to discover and realize is this, that despite the Bible's complexity 
And despite the development of all of these councils and all of these various creeds and all of these various confessions and all of the clarifications that have happened, your basic fundamental Christian orthodoxy has remained completely intact for 2,000 years. And nothing compares to that. Nothing compares to that. The world says, well, there's no way to know the truth with so many different denominations. You know how silly that is? I want you to think about the English language. Do you know how many dialects of English there are? There are all kinds of dialects. You can speak with a British dialect. I don't have one. Uh, you can speak with one from Ghana. I, I don't have one of those. You can speak the American dialect. What's up? That's the American dialect. Or the Australian, put another shrimp on the bobby, right? So that is... Thank you. Yeah, you knew it was coming. The author put another shrimp on it. Anyway, okay. So you've got all of these different dialects. Now imagine somebody seeing all of these different dialects and deciding, well, there's just no way to know English. You can't know English because look at all the different dialects people are speaking. Well, that, no, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Now we can bicker about whose dialect is more accurate to what the English language should be, but it doesn't disprove the existence of the English language. This is where humility is so critical in our mission to undermine Satan's lies to the world. How do we treat fellow Christians who we believe are in error? I think this is really, really important for us because a lack of humility can be a real stumbling block to the world. This church, we're right, they're wrong, case closed, they're going to hell. Do you know how much of a stumbling block that is to the world? I'll give you an example. You know how long I believed and taught heresy? I'm serious. A heretical teaching, I believed it and I taught it. I'm going to tell you what it is right now. It was, I was trying to explain the, uh, I'm getting warm. Um, I was trying to explain the uh, Trinity, right? The God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in three different persons. They're all God, but they exist in three different persons. And I thought, this is what's so funny, I thought that I'd come up with this. You know how many millions of people have come up with this before? But for a while, I thought, I'm a genius because I came up with this. I was using the example of water. The water exists in three different states. There's the solid, okay, and that's the Father. He's a block of ice. And then you get the liquid, and that's Jesus, the Son, and he flows through us. And then you have the Spirit, and that's the, the water vapor, because the Spirit is woo, like the vapor is, right? All three of those are H2O, yes? All three are H2O, made up of the same stuff, but they're existing in three different states. Same thing. God, the Son, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all made up of the same God stuff, but they exist in three different states. For so long, that is complete and utter heresy. And why? <laughs> because if you warm God up, he doesn't melt into Jesus, all right? And, and, and the spirit, if you, if you freeze him, he doesn't become this block of ice that is God. He doesn't change from one to another depending on the environment. It's a heretical teaching, yes? Now, I taught that and believed that. I was a Christian in error. Was I not a believer? Was I not a Christian? Because I was teaching and believing heresy, did that make me a non-believer in Christ? Of course not. My understanding of the nature of Christ was flawed. No question about it. But I was a genuine believer in Jesus. Once I was counseled and convicted about my error, I corrected it. And I don't teach that anymore. And when people say, didn't you? I say, no, I didn't. I, I never said that. <laughs> never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. This is the point. It's not our perfect knowledge of Jesus that saves us. It is the perfect Jesus who saves us. That is such an important thing. It's not our perfect application of truth that saves us. It is the God that that truth paints the picture of who saves us. That's the reality, and that should humble our pride. Take a lesson from the giants out there. I don't know if you know who George Whitfield is. Big-time Calvinist. And then you had John Wesley, who's a big-time Arminian. And if you don't know church history, you know, it's fine. What? 
basic uh, difference between them. The Calvinists believe in predestination, that, that God sets these people to be saved, and, and those are the ones, the elect, that are going to be chosen. The Arminians are more free will people, and we all make our own choices, and God gives us that agency. Okay, and they believe two completely different things. And these guys are titans of the faith. So many followers. Wesley called Whitfield's doctrine a monstrous doctrine, called it blasphemy, okay? And Whitfield said that he and Wesley preached two different gospels, and he would not extend the hand of fellowship, but he would preach against him all the days of his life. So these are two titans of the faith on complete opposite sides, preaching against each other at the same time that they're living. One of Whitfield's followers asked towards the end of their life, asked of, of, of Whitfield, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? You know what Whitfield responded with? Whitfield famously replies, you're right. We won't see him in heaven. And the guy says, I knew it. But before he could get that out, Whitfield continued and said, he will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. They understood and believed in their hearts that the other was teaching heresy, was teaching blasphemy. But they also saw a heart that was completely committed to God the Father. And they had humility enough to realize that God looks upon the heart and understands the reality of, of our condition. G.K. Chesterton said, our problem is this. It's dislocated humility. I had no idea what that meant. I had to read it like three or four different times to try to understand, and I got it. Here's what he means by dislocated humility. What he meant was this. We increasingly, as, as human beings, doubt truth, and we become more confident in ourselves. And that's the opposite of what it should be. Every day as a believer, I should become more confident in the truth and increasingly doubtful about myself. I should be submitting to the truth. The boundaries are there. They are good. They're good for all of us, and we should pursue discovering them. And when we do so with humility, I believe that the world just may respond. Why do I say that? This last week, I was in Disney, and exactly like I told you, the kids don't pick up the map. We walk by. It's the middle of the day. We're in the Magic Kingdom, and there's this group of kids, and they're wondering aimlessly, can you show us where the Haunted Mansion is? And I said, yeah, it's really, really simple. You just go past Small World. You'll pass Peter Pan on the left. You go past the Tangled Bathrooms and the towers up there, and you're going to see the Haunted Mansion right there. They've been looking for it for hours. And the other question was, how do you even find your way around this place? Can I tell you how many people in the world are asking that question? They may not say it with their lips, but they're stumbling around trying to make up right and wrong for themselves, and they're getting burned and hurt by it. And the question of their life is as plain and apparent as it could possibly be. How do I find my way around this place? You and I have the mission to show them the boundaries that will at once free them and guide them home. Father God, I thank you for those boundaries. I thank you for your truth. I pray that we would be people of the truth, not our own, but yours. It's a, it's a lost world that we live in, people stumbling around in the darkness. But you have asked us to be your agents of light, to shine like a beacon of light in the darkness down on your truth so that those who see it and find it can find their way home. May we take that challenge seriously. I pray for this church. I pray for the hearts and the minds of the believers here that every day we would become more excited about knowing you and then sharing that with the world. That ours would not be an attitude of we're right and they're wrong and we're going to go out and prove it that way. But instead, one of humility that says 
we've found something unbelievable and we want others to know it as well. Father, may that be the character of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said.